of the songs in which we have together already sung have truly been spectacular in terms of the message, in terms of the significance, in terms of what they mean to each of us. Songs like, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all the name of the Lord. Songs such as Tempted and Tried, and so isn't it true that often as we're surrounded by those matters that challenge us here, you and I know quite well the promise of the word will forever be that which is so strong and continuing. And that third one, give me the Bible. And certainly, don't you and I lift so high the banner of the truth which it proclaims. Tonight, you may have already noticed on the wall that's now behind me, we're going to give some thought to that text that Brother Vestal read a minute ago in Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. So I hope you'll be turning back to that location, and we'll give our attention to that pair of verses here in just a few minutes. You know, we've come together tonight, and as we do that in the effort to offer worship to the God of heaven, it's a special thing. In fact, it's very meaningful. It is one of the grandest things you and I can ever do in this life. And as we come together like this, it affords us an opportunity each and every week and each and every time the services have been scheduled to come together and do the most important singular act we'll ever do in this life. In fact, as Jesus stated like this, God's a spirit and they that worship Him must do so in spirit and in truth. And so tonight, we look forward to participating, continuing in this at least for the lesson part of our service tonight, could I at least turn our attention to this introductory slide? You and I know quite well about the word judge. It's a five-letter word, J-U-D-G-E, and yet as you give thought to what it signifies, quite often it has a very, very negative connotation religiously. There are many who, at least from a moral and from an ethical and from a useful standpoint, they would be quick to say something very different than what the Bible would teach about this. I thought we might start that introductory slide just by putting some basic comments before us. Comments that start at the top that looks like this. You and I know the word can be used in a rather official capacity. Now, there are those who, in a court of law, occupy the place of the judge. And it is his or her responsibility to dispense justice in light of the case that's appearing before them. Now, you and I know there are people like that. They go to law school, and they undergo a lot of training, and they finally have the J.D. behind their name, a doctor of jurisprudence, and they can thus serve in an official capacity as a judge. But it's also true that that word can be used in a very different way than that. But yet tonight, as we describe to judge or not to judge, we're going to give some thought to it. And you may notice about the middle of that slide that sometimes, in fact quite often, that word is used not in the official capacity like I discussed a moment ago, but it's to make a decision, to reach a conclusion relative to some set of circumstances that might well be before you. And may I point out all of us do this. We make judgments about those matters we face and the circumstances in which we are and in light of what our response to those circumstances must in fact be. It's any wonder then, as you close that slide with me, that you still hear many times comments to this effect, well, you don't have any right to judge me. You know, you, it's not your place to judge me. Don't judge me. In fact, on this next slide, I thought I'd share somewhat about some quotes so prevalent is that way of thinking 
and so common is it that I thought I would just mention a few. It could have been extended many times over. Clint Eastwood, who, of course, is an actor, I suppose rather famous for saying, before you judge me, make sure you're perfect. And that's beginning to lend this idea that if you and I are to judge, if at least we follow that advice, you have to make sure there's no sin of any form in your life. We'll look at the next one. Every time you judge someone, you reveal a part of yourself that needs healing. Again, giving an impression that the very first time you ever draw a conclusion about someone else that you yourself are in need of repair, that there's something wrong with me before I can at least begin to offer any element of wisdom or judging with regard to you. Look at the third one. There's a story behind every person. There's a reason they are the way they are. Stop judging. All these quotes, I suppose, don't convey anything other than what the common belief on the part of many may well be. The last one on that page. Judging someone does not define who they are. It defines who you are. Again, if you do much opportunity to reflect upon various quotations about the element of judging, you'll find these and a whole host of others. But isn't it fair to say in light of all of them, judging by its very character has a rather negative connotation. In light of all of them, you'd say it's just something you're not supposed to do. If someone wants to live their life in terms of whatever choices or pursuits they may well make, let them do it. Now, you and I know the Bible just won't sustain this. It won't allow that to be the respected course of action because there is a right and there is a wrong. And even if things don't fall as neatly in those categories, there are things that are unwise. There are things that are improper. There are things that are not the best. And God would call upon all of us to be aware of them, not only in ourselves, but in others as well. As you and I develop some of these features tonight, to judge or not to judge. This next slide will then journey a little bit more forward in this, specifically by developing a bit more thoroughly that matter that you and I raised earlier. A moment ago, I made the comment that there's an official capacity in which there are those who are trained to serve as, as elements of judgment. Now, the Bible, in fact, the Old Testament, sets that forward rather clearly, doesn't it? In Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 and following, Moses directly addressed the judges and told them, Don't you be guilty of bribes, and don't you be guilty of dispensing judgment advantageous to some, merely because of what they could return to you. But again, those were individuals that again occupied a place that could be regarded as the, the official capacity of judging. It's certainly interesting to notice, though, that two chapters later, in Deuteronomy 19, verses 18 and following, those judges were very carefully told that as they reached their verdicts, it was to be based on the facts that had been taking place in the case. You don't judge simply based on their appearance. If a man's beard wasn't long enough, you don't declare him guilty just because of the length of his beard. Otherwise, if he came from a family that wasn't the most highly apprised by you, that didn't matter. That was not to be the reason that you reached the verdict that you reach. As Moses encouraged those judges in that light, it's rather interesting to notice then that the judgment that they reached, it was based on, 
again that which had been done. I would submit to you that the New Testament, as it carries that forward, it certainly would challenge you and me to recognize exactly the same. In fact, as you come into the New Testament, you and I realize today there is a law in place. It's the law of Christ. It's that law identified in 1 Corinthians 9, 21. And it's that law highlighted in Galatians 6, verse 2. Bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It might also be added to that that Paul spoke rather definitively in Romans 8, verse 2 about the nature of the fact that you and I are under law to Christ. It's that law that the Spirit has revealed. And it's that law that you and I certainly are rather excited about. Surely it's interesting to notice if there were no law today, there could be no sin because sin is the transgression of the law. And all of us recognize fully well that there is sin today because there is law today. Now, it's not the law of Moses, and it's not the other kinds of law mentioned in the Old Testament, but it is the law that Christ has set forward and the law that has been revealed. That, of course, not only dictates the thoroughness and the character of the church by itself, but your life and mine individually. It's what determines, isn't it, whether we're satisfactory and our actions are pleasing to God or not. But that immediately begs this observation, what then about judging? The same premise that was true of the Old Testament still continues to be the case. When judgment is reached, it's not merely based on, I don't like the color of his clothes, I don't like the color of his hair, I don't like his hairstyle, and I don't like the color of his car. Well, that can't be the basis for judgment. You and I must, just like the Old Testament premise, draw our conclusions based on actions, whether they're consistent with the standard that has been set forward. That's what would allow a proper and right appreciation of judgment, isn't it? But as you step one matter beyond that, this next slide will then lead us to consider this. This slide is a rather brief one, only identifying the following. First of all, you and I know well that there are secrets of the heart. There are things, you see, that are the case about a person that they may never say, and they may never reveal it. You and I could quickly admit that God judges the secrets of the hearts. It is He spoken of in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14, that highlights that in that day, that day of judgment, God shall in fact make known and make basis of judgment based upon the secrets of the heart. But of course, that isn't the only place that's found in Romans 2, 16, in the heart of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul highlighted there that in that day of judgment, God shall judge every man according by way of the secrets but it shall be done according to my gospel. And so you and I come back to the realization that the gospel is the basis. It is that which affords us and allows us the opportunity to draw conclusions based upon that which one observes. One final verse would be the very one that Jesus mentioned in Matthew 15, verse 19. Isn't it true there that the Master Himself commented and made observation again about the reality of carrying out this issue relative to, again, God knows the secrets of the heart. 
at this point, can we not make a conclusion or at least draw from these to point in the direction to John 7, verse 24? There, Jesus commanded that you and I participate in judgment. And by that, I mean that we judge righteously. Now, we don't judge based on appearance, and we don't judge based on other matters of triviality. But we are commanded to be those who judge. And I believe we can easily imagine so many things in the New Testament require that we do this. In fact, demand that we do this. Jesus said, though, judge righteous judgment. So isn't it true that you and I are commanded? You and I are encouraged to be ever the ones who judge righteous judgment. As we've already learned, that doesn't mean based on the color of the car, based on the number of children they've got, things like that. But it is true, it's a righteous judgment. What is right? What is it that the gospel reveals? What is it the Word of God allows us to conclude? And as we do all of this, isn't it a reminder that thankfully we do have the perfect law of liberty before us? That phraseology is used in James chapter number 1, verses 25 and following. The perfect law of liberty. So, perfectness, you and I do not rest upon and must with fault use a law that's imperfect. Therefore, what the Bible allows us to conclude and what it says is not up for debate. It's not up for being questioned. It is the absoluteness of that which the Word of God presents to us and which the wisdom of God has, has shown to you and to me. Having said all of that, if judgment then is to be something we do, that takes us back then to the lesson text. What did Jesus mean when He said, Judge not, that you be not judged? Is there a contradiction here? John 7, 24 says, You judge righteous judgment. Matthew 7, 1 says, Judge not. Which is it? Are we to judge? And if so, in what way must that be carried out? In many ways, we've already highlighted the features of resolution, obviously. But surely, in the remainder of the lesson, we can do a more thorough job at putting some of those pieces together and doing so like this. That first observation I would ask you to make with me. The text again had read, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured unto you again. As I've already highlighted, that word judge is used in a couple of ways in the Word of God. One of which involves that official capacity. You and I recognize here that the Lord isn't merely making a statement about that kind of usage. What He's making a statement about is much broader than that. Let's make several applications, the first of which is this one. It is the Word of God that must form that basis as you and I reach the conclusions that we're able to reach. And that's true even about your own personal life as well as mine. When you and I make decisions and choices about, am I living as God would have me to, don't you have to make a decision? And how do you know the answer? The way I know if I'm living rightly or not is I hold my life up to the mirror of this Word. And I draw and draw a conclusion based on the evidence of what my life illustrates. And I then are able to answer the question, am I doing this? Do I have the thinking processes and the actions that would follow? 
based on what this word would suggest and demand? If that answer is yes, I have reached a conclusion that in light of the evidence presented, I'm living righteously. But if on the other hand the answer is no, I've still reached a conclusion and I've still reached a judgment. But it's a judgment based on the facts of what my life would present over against what this gospel would describe. On that slide, I developed that somewhat like this. We can never move aside from the blessed beauty and the sheer greatness of the Word of God. We are not left to our own personal individual devices. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. And when you and I couple that with that text of 2 Timothy 3.16, there's a part of that verse that's easy, I suppose, to overlook. You know, we often emphasize the opening declaration, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and that's wonderful. But notice what follows it. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Look at the middle two of that list. Reproof? In other words, when you and I then use the Scriptures in order to oppose or at least challenge what someone is doing or upholds. Reproof means correction. It has the idea of turning about from what was to what now should be. In other words, here was an element of judging, apparently. Someone approached someone and said, in light of these passages, in light of these texts, that course of action is not sustainable. It's not what you can defend in the Word of God. And thus, a reproof took place. And that involved correction as well. Isn't it true then that the Word of God was able, by the very words of Paul, to serve as a standard of correction? But again, notice it wasn't a personal thing. It was the Word of God that served as that standard for appreciation. Not only that, look at that next passage, if you would, in John 12, verse 48. This very Son of God Himself made this statement, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Now Jesus on that occasion pointed out, If you reject me, notice where that leads. Receiveth not my word, hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same will judge him. You and I then stand in the amazing presence of this, which serves as the final, the absolute, and the unassailable judge. Therefore, you and I realize the Bible teaches on many occasions in many places about the reality of the finality of that judgment based upon the Word of God. That means certainly that when you and I use the Word of God in an effort and with a loving desire to judge someone and to aid or move or assist them, we surely must have the Word of God at hand, meaning it's our desire to allow the Word of God to do this which we're trying. We're only the messengers. We're only those who speak about it. It's the Word of God that's actually finally carrying this out with us and for us. Isn't it an interesting thing as you close that particular slide with me that it is a reminder, isn't it? Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It has been said, and I suppose it's true, 
that you can use the Bible to just about uphold nearly anything you want to. In fact, you might even notice how that you can even uphold suicide. After all, notice that the text says that what Judas did, he went out and did quickly. Should you and I take that as a finality of encouragement for you and me? Again, we have to realize the context in which that was asserted. What thou doest, do quickly. That was not for me and you in the sense of going out and doing what Judas did. What we appreciate in it is a testimony of what the choice Judas made. When it comes to you and me today, we realize how needful it is to rightly divide the Word of God, to not draw from it what the context and the teaching would not consistently present. But our second point, we'll use all of that journeying forward to make this observation. When it comes to one's spiritual condition, there is nothing more important than this. That's true of you and me personally. It's certainly true as you and I give consideration to others as well. Are you right with God? There is no single question more important, more needful, more vital, more urgent than that one. In fact, aren't you reminded of the question the jailer asked in Acts 16.30? What shall I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Isn't it an amazing thing to recognize that on that evening, the earthquake, you know, happened in the Philippian area, and it shook that jail and opened the prison doors, and it loosed the shackles that bound the prisoners. The jailer awakened out of his sleep, and he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. Paul sprang in with a light and said, Don't do yourself any harm. We're all here. At this point, that man, haven't you been amazed? Why didn't he immediately ask, Well, why have you chosen to stay? What is it that brought about such an earthquake? I've never experienced one in my whole life like this. Those were not his questions. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That man at that point knew he wasn't right with God. He had drawn a conclusion. He had judged concerning himself. You and I would greatly applaud the decision he made. We would, in fact, lift up the hands for the reality of the approach that he took. And he knew who to ask. What must I do to be saved? He asked Paul and Silas. Apparently, he was already aware of the fact of that for which they stood and the kind of preaching that they had presented. And he understood something rather different about that circumstance, and he asked them that question. Today, you and I can, of course, similarly do something. Are you and I right with God? Am I? Are you? And as you and I ask the question, we have the pattern to which we can compare and recognize what the answer is. Judging is vital. None of us will go to heaven without it. It's needful, it's, it's urgent, it's essential. As you close that opening slide, the opening part of that slide with me, I ask you to notice a couple of additional verses, one of which in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. It's a passage that I know we're familiar with, but it says, Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. The word examine is another way that identifies to, based on the evidence, to draw a conclusion, to reach a verdict. Are you and I in the faith? That verse commands that we exercise ourselves in light of carrying out that examination. 
in first in first Thessalonians five verse twenty one. Prove all things. Hold to that which is good. May I ask you to consider what that word prove means? It means to consider in light of not only the reality and circumstances of the thing, but in light of the greater consideration of what it is. Prove it. Does it meet the standard and the context of being supportable? Is it consistent with that which is true? Paul then asserted, once you have correctly examined and once you've judged, you hold to what's good. So suppose you, in fact, carry out an examination of something and find it not good. You don't hold to that. You don't cling to that. Isn't it amazing to consider verses like these reminding us of the needfulness of drawing conclusions, the needfulness of carrying out these examinations and judgments? What about point number three? In addition to these two, it's certainly many times necessary to give our attention to judgment in relation to religious matters. Now, you and I know many verses will lead us to give thought to this, and I by no means have listed all of them. But isn't it true? The Word of God is very clear about this. There is doctrine and teaching that's false. We know that. Jesus asserted it would be this way. And many other New Testament writers, in fact, pointed it out as well. And so the matter comes before you and me that we must be those who judge a given doctrine. Is it true or is it not? Is it consistent with the Bible or is it not? Jesus Himself declared, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 8 verse 32. But to that we might quickly add, in Acts 17 verse 11, what a noble example. In fact, that word is a part of that passage. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. No, false teaching is not merely something that has been true in recent times. It was true in the Lord's day. It was even true back, of course, in days prior to that. I suppose it has been a common practice and a matter of great intrigue to present what felt like it was true and what one supposed was true, but yet it turned out not to be so. Among those verses, I would ask you to consider perhaps none is stronger than 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God. You'll notice even in John's day, and that was in the first century, there were spirits that were proclaiming and preaching and carrying out various matters related to things consistent with religion. And yet, John said, don't believe everything you hear in that context. But rather, you and I notice, we are admonished to recognize the needfulness one more time of understanding that we must be those who judge. For after all, we cannot be a party to supporting what is not correct in the sight of God. John would tell us rather notably in 2 John verses 9 through 11, we're not able to even bid by the blessing of God, God speed to those who do not uphold that doctrine of Christ. As you close that slide with me, one more time, notice how judgment has been a part of these descriptions. What about number four? When you and I thus carry out this element in judgment, 
we must not do so hypocritically. That is to say, not given to an aspect or an air of hypocrisy. In fact, Paul used this very idea and rather strongly presented it, I might add, in the second chapter of the Roman letter. Paul, in fact, challenged in some, in some sense, chastised those who were Jews by pointing out to them, you yourself that say you're not supposed to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And you yet say you're not supposed to be those guilty of certain things. Are you guilty of it? One of the things even Jesus confessed and noted in his preaching, you do what they bid you to do, but you don't do what they practice. Notice they were guilty of hypocrisy. They could, in essence, speak about things that were noteworthy and things that would be in order, but they didn't follow it. Well, that might challenge you and me to recognize that when it comes to these matters of judging and examination, we must be careful. To some extent, the Lord will take us back to that reality as we revisit Matthew chapter 7 in just a moment. But at least as you close that fourth point with me, notice how Jesus described it. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? But considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite! First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou clearly see to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. And so in the very context in which we see this passage relating to judging, even Jesus mentioned, Will you that have a big log in your eye, and you're trying to remove a speck out of somebody else's, you're trying to take a little splinter out of someone else's eye when you yourself have this log that obscures your vision and obscures your viewpoint. The Lord reminded each of us here in light of a consideration that that judgment that we deliver is something we ought to give thought to. How will it be revisited upon us? He first of all has encouraged us in verses 3, 4, and 5 to be mindful of the judgment in light of ourselves. But you'll notice he didn't say that we'll be perfect. And this is one of the first things we need to dispel. Just because someone else may have issues in their life doesn't mean they might not have a word of wisdom that could be of benefit in reproof and correction for you and me. And isn't it true? That's one of the first things. Well, you're not perfect, and what right have you to tell me anything? Well, it may be that person has issues to consider and matters upon which they can work. But it may still be in light of the passages to which they refer, what they're saying may well be on target in light of me or in light of you. And so it is. We must realize just because there are imperfections in someone else's life does not mean we should ignore what they say or neglect what they may well share toward you and me. As you close that fourth point there with me, it does lead to one more that I hope can somewhat wrap up or at least allow us to consider the final thing on that fifth point, and that's this one. Jesus himself said in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 7, that with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. 
if you and I tend to be those who judge in a hurtful or censorious way, we judge in a hypocritical fashion, for example, that Jesus there says that's the same way others will revisit that upon us. They will judge us with hurtfulness, and they'll judge us without evidence, and they'll judge us in light of what ought not be the case. Jesus thus asserted the kind of disposition that we use will tend to be the kind that will be revisited upon us. It's somewhat sad that that's the way things work, but that's the way the human family seems to be. By the very same token, if you and I will judge rightly in the disposition of truth, carrying out an examination in light of evidence and not jumping too quickly to a conclusion, then you and I could recognize and hope at least that others might have that same disposition and that same tenor of reaction of judgment to us. At the very least, aren't we reminded though here, as we have seen tonight, the importance of being those that judge, drawing conclusions based on the evidence we see, and recognizing how strongly the Word of God has things to say about our behavior as you and I carry out that judgment in our own lives, toward the lives of those that we love, in the lives of those we appreciate and treasure and wish to have the best words of concern for them, we do that in a way that brings us to, the, to this concluding slide, which is really just a conclusion. We've learned, among other things, that the Bible commands us to be those who judge. That's true of our own life. It's true of the lives, again, of others. It has relation to false doctrine. It has relations always to a basis in the Bible. And it has relation, of course, to the nature and the consideration of setting aside hypocrisy and also understanding that that same kind of judgment will tend to be the very one that comes back upon us. Tonight, as you and I give thought to then to judge or not to judge, well, we know the Bible commands us to be in the former category. But to do so in the way the Word of God would carry out with a righteous judgment, John 7, verse 24. This evening, as you and I analyze ourselves, whether we be in the faith, that examination can allow us to answer with definitiveness. It's not a matter of, well, I don't know. It's a matter of, I need to do something about it, if again the answer is no. Tonight, if there's anyone in this assembly that finds yourself upon examination not right in the sight of God, why not do something about that this evening? Why not, in fact, ask brethren, if it's a circumstance that you have erred from the faith, that faith you once have known and you stood for and you lived, but as of tonight, that seems to be a very dim reflection. The Lord could re-energize you, and He would wish to do that. You just need to let Him do it. Why not make confession of those errors, make repentance of them, and invite us to pray? If, however, you have never become a Christian, then why not tonight? You realize it, requ it requires a judgment for you to know that I'm not right with God, though I know what I need to do. We would be honored to assist and to help and to encourage you. The Lord demands you believe in Him and repent of your sins and confess His name and be baptized. And if we could be of assistance in that way tonight, what a joyous occasion. What a time of celebration. We would love to help. A song of encouragement has been selected. If we could be of some assistance now, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?